Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Colossians. We will be looking this morning at Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14. Last week we began our study in this letter that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, and we saw how their um, confidence and hope of this coming new world drove them in faith in Christ and love for one another. And Paul was giving thanks for what he saw God at work doing in them. And today we'll move from Paul's thanksgiving about those things to Paul breaking forth in what he prays for them as a church. One of the things that consistently shows up in Christian surveys is dissatisfaction with one's prayer life. You ever feel that way? Uh, I don't know that I've ever met a Christian who said, I answered 10 out of 10 on uh, questions about my prayer life. And so if you feel that way at all, you're in good company. Um, And what are some of the reasons that we may feel dissatisfied with how we pray? I mean, some of the reasons could be we're not praying enough, we're not praying consistently, and we know that. Many of us are usually far quicker to turn to other things. I like to turn to doing things rather than to going to God about him doing things. Uh, It's something that lies deep within our hearts. But I find that one of the things that can make us struggle with our prayers can be that sometimes we don't know what to pray. Do you ever have that experience? You hear the struggle that a brother or a sister is going through in the church and you find yourself wondering, what in the world would I even ask for other than for this to just stop? And we can pray that those things will stop. That is one of the things we can do, but there are more things that we can pray. And I don't know about you, but I find that for myself, sometimes my prayers just feel redundant and they can feel thoughtless because I just keep saying things that I have just fallen into routine of saying. And while we may be able to think of what we can pray for others, sometimes we come up dry when it comes to actually praying for ourselves. What in the world do I even ask God to be doing in my life right now in the midst of what I'm facing or in the midst of how I'm feeling? And so I have found personally that this example of Paul's prayer is one of the most helpful and encouraging passages in the midst of that very struggle because he shows us the content, the the grammar of words and phrases of, of things that are pleasing for us to pray to God for others and for ourselves. And as we look at the passage this morning as well, I I find that what it also does is it moves our hearts to want to pray these things as it gives us a glimpse of what God is doing through his gospel, both in the world and in us. And so let me read our passage, Colossians 1, verses 9 through 14, and then we will pray and ask the Lord's help. But hear God's word from Colossians 1 starting in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, 
for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we ask your help that your spirit would help us to understand the, the beauty and the wonder of this text, that you would build within us an understanding of what you are at work doing in the gospel and how we can pray in accord with those things. We pray that you would help us to see the wonder of what our Lord Jesus has accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And we pray that all of this would be to your glory. It's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Well, as we look at this prayer, uh, I want to do so in three main points. The first will be praying to please the Lord Jesus. Then second, four ways to please the Lord Jesus. And then finally, the story of our prayers. And so if you like outlines, there it is. And I'll try and remind you of it as we go. But the first thing that we see as we come to this passage is really kind of the point of what Paul's praying. And at the heart of the prayer is this desire to please the Lord Jesus, praying to please the Lord Jesus. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. And I'd I'd like to read them again so it's fresh in our minds as we walk through this. He says in verse 9, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Right away, we see that this is a consistent prayer for the Colossians. When Paul says, we have not ceased to pray for you, he doesn't mean that literally they have never stopped praying, but it's a way of saying day after day, or that it's a regular, consistent practice of theirs. And notice that Paul doesn't here just say that he prays for them, but he says that we, that he and others, and at least including Timothy, but others in his team are consistently praying this for the Colossians. And so it's good news for us. When we wonder what to pray, here's a consistent prayer that Paul is praying for believers. And so there's much that we can learn. And there are really three things that we see in these opening verses that help us understand what he's asking for. First, it's a prayer for a fitting lifestyle. It's a prayer for a fitting lifestyle. Paul tends to amazingly pile up phrase upon phrase. And if you've been looking at this passage this week, you can notice that, I mean, in the Greek, it's just one long sentence that just keeps going. And it's like, Paul, when are you going to stop just dropping things on top of each other? So we have to kind of tease it out to see the point. And really, if we look in verse 10, we see the heart of their request when Paul says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord fully pleasing to him. That's really the goal there. And let's, let's think about that, and then, and then we'll think about what comes before and after it. But first of all, Paul's desire centers around their walk. 
And this is not about taking literal steps. It's not about how long their stride is. It's, it's an Old Testament way of speaking of how one lives. And one's lifestyle is described throughout the Bible as one's walk along a path. And so this prayer is a prayer that their life or their walk or their conduct would be worthy of and pleasing to the Lord. Worthy and pleasing. How do you hear those words? Because how we hear those words actually really affects how we understand this prayer. And when it comes to words like worthy and pleasing, there's a difference between using them to describe ways to get something that we don't have by becoming worthy or becoming pleasing, And there's a way to use those in the sense of describing what flows from the status that we already have. And so for the Christian, it's important for us to know that these words, worthy and pleasing here, are not describing earning something, but they're describing what is fitting for us who are in Christ already. When we think of worthy and pleasing in terms of earning, we could illustrate it by thinking about maybe going to work for a boss. And if you're trying to get a particular promotion and maybe this boss is hard to please and it's really hard to get it, then you could be saying, I hope my performance is worthy of the promotion. I hope my performance has been pleasing to the boss so I could gain that promotion. That's thinking of it in the gaining earning way. But for believers, we already have that status of being worthy of the love and affection of God. Because Christ has pleased the Father, we are now pleasing to him. And so as we think now, we would think in terms of having a benevolent boss who does all that he can to make sure that his employees are thriving and um, doing well. And so that boss is Living worthy of the boss means living a life that's fitting with having someone who cares so much about you and has done so much for you. And it involves enjoying the benefits that that the boss has secured for you. The pay, the benefits, the work environment. And the boss is pleased then when he sees his employees or her employees thriving under their care. And so when Paul prays that they would live in a way that is worthy and pleasing to the Lord Jesus, he's praying that they would live in a way that's fitting of who they are now in Christ. And that brings us to then what comes before. How do we live a life that's pleasing to or fitting to the Lord Jesus? How does that happen? Well, first, it's a prayer for this fitting lifestyle. But then secondly, it's a prayer for the Spirit's insight. It's a prayer for the Spirit's insight. And we see that there in verse 9. He says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. This happens through divine filling. Notice he prays that they may be filled with what? With the knowledge of God's will. 
And the knowledge of God's will isn't what we might think of, of of knowing these secret things of God, of what's going to happen next in our lives. But no, it's being filled with the knowledge of God's moral will, of what he desires for his people to be and to do. Paul is praying that they would be filled with an awareness of God's desires and of God's ways so that they, as God's image bearers, would be able to act like God in every circumstance they find themselves in, which is what we were made to do as image bearers of the living God. Acting like God in every circumstance we find ourselves in That's a pretty complicated thing, isn't it? The longer I live, the more complicated I realize that it is. And this doesn't happen just by knowing a set of rules, does it? We can know the Ten Commandments. We can know all kinds of rules that the Scriptures give us about life, but they're not in themselves comprehensive enough to know exactly how to answer your child when they're throwing a fit in front of you. They're not comprehensive enough to know what is the wise thing to say when someone we love is wrestling with questions of life and faith. They're not comprehensive enough that they tell us exactly how to love our neighbor this moment in this day. To know how to do that takes understanding what God's will is, and it takes wisdom and knowledge and insight of how to take those things and apply them to the particular situations that we face. So to know God's will or to know what would be worthy of the Lord Jesus and and fully pleasing to him, we need wisdom and we need understanding. But did you notice Paul prays that they would have that? He prays that this wisdom and understanding would come in such a way that it's modified by two words, All wisdom and spiritual understanding. All means that they would have comprehensive wisdom for every situation that they face. And spiritual doesn't mean just inner somehow or some mystical guidance about what to do, but instead it means that it's from the Holy Spirit. As 1 Corinthians 2 tells us that the Spirit of God knows even the depths of God and he's able to communicate those things to us. The Holy Spirit is the one who brings us that spiritual wisdom and understanding that we need to live life in a way that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And now it all kind of starts to come together. Because the third thing that we see is really, this is a prayer for them to live like Jesus. Is there anyone who has had all wisdom and all understanding to perfectly know and walk according to God's will? There's one person. And I saw some of you mouthing the answer. Very good. You're getting ready for Sunday school where we use that that answer every week. Yes, it's Jesus, right? Jesus is the one who did that. And how did he do it? And I think this is what we might not always think about. How did Jesus, as a man, walk in a way that was fully pleasing to the Father? As he says in John 8, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. He did it by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. 
In Isaiah 11.2, Isaiah is prophesying about what the Spirit will do for the Messiah, what the Spirit will do for our Lord Jesus. And it says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his, the Messiah's delight, shall be in the fear of the Lord. You realize that our Lord Jesus lived a life of delight in fearing and obeying God. He delighted to keep his will. And he did that because the Spirit enabled him to do that every moment of every day of his life here on this earth. And the amazing thing about what Paul is praying here is that the same Spirit who empowered our Lord to live a life pleasing to the Father is now the same Spirit who is at work in us, enabling us to walk in a way that is pleasing both to the Lord Jesus. And what's pleasing to the Lord Jesus is pleasing the Father. And the Spirit helps us to do all of this. And when the Spirit does this, and our walk is worthy of Jesus' walk, the Lord Jesus is pleased. He's delighted to see that in us. When we live in a way that shows the fruit of the Spirit's work, in a way that's loving or joyful or patient or gentle or kind or self-controlled, Our Lord Jesus is saying, yes, there it is. That is what I have secured for you in my death and in my resurrection. Look, you are living now more and more like me. You are living now more and more like what it means to fully be human, to fully image God as you were created to do, to walk according to the will of God. So if we boil all this beautiful theology down, we come to something really rather simple. Paul is praying that the Colossians would please the Lord Jesus with how they live. And he's praying that the Spirit would give them wisdom and understanding that they need to be able to do that in the various circumstances they face in this life. In some ways, it's such a simple prayer. But what I find is I'm starting to say, okay, I think I'm getting it. (laughs) We're to pray that we would live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus, but could you fill it out just a little? It's it's a little nebulous to me uh, when I think of my entire life. And Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me give you four participle phrases that will show you categories of, of what a life that's pleasing to the Lord is so that you can pray it for others and so that you can pray it for yourself as well. And so the first thing that we saw is that we're praying to please the Lord Jesus. And now we'll look at four ways to please the Lord Jesus that we see primarily in verses 10 through 12. And as I read verses 10 through 12, you can, well, I'll read verses 10 through 14, but you can be listening for four ing phrases, four participle phrases that then we'll unpack together. So those of you who love grammar, get out your pencils. Those of you who don't, we'll uh, we'll all do it together. So 
Paul goes on to say in verse 10, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience, with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So, did you catch those there? There are four ING words, and they're bearing fruit, increasing, being strengthened, and giving thanks. Those are kind of the handles, the categories that he uses. And while we could look at them all individually, I'm going to address them in pairs, because I, I think they actually correlate together. The, the first thing that we see is that Paul desires that we would be bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit and growing in the knowledge of God. We often tend to think in terms of outcomes, don't we? I, I know I'm a task-oriented person, but I think all of us, to some degree or another, really think about life in terms of are we fixing the problem? Are we answering the question? Are we finishing the task? But the Christian life is much more often described in terms of growth because it's really not complete until glory, is it? It's something that we're always growing and progressing in. And in the meantime, while we're awaiting glorification, Jesus is pleased when we are bearing fruit that process of fruit growing within us. Not that it's just lined up on the shelves, that it's already grown, it's already been picked, and it's ready to eat, but that it's growing in us. And that fruit elsewhere in Scripture is attributed to the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what he's producing in us. It it comes from the Spirit, and it looks like Jesus, doesn't it? That means that when we pray and we wonder, what would be pleasing to Jesus? what we could always pray for others and for ourselves is that in whatever situation we find ourselves in, fruit would be growing in us. The fruit of love, the fruit of joy, the fruit of peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control that those things would be budding and growing in our lives, regardless of what's happening. That's what our Lord Jesus wants to have happening in us by his Spirit. And that kind of action, that kind of bearing fruit, is actually related to our knowledge of God. Increasing in the knowledge of God, which is the second phrase that Paul uses here, is not just gaining a list of facts about God and about his attributes, but it's knowing him. It's knowing who he is. It's knowing what he does in history. It's knowing who he is for you as your God. Much like as we saw in Exodus, the Lord was revealing his name to his people and they came to know who he was as their God by what he did and by what he proclaimed about himself and how they walked with him in those things. 
You see, we often pit knowledge and action against each other, don't we? We can think of knowledge as something that just puffs up or just gives us a big head and it's disconnected from our hearts and from our minds. But the Apostle Paul conceives of knowledge and action as going together in kind of a spiral. As we come to know God, it makes us want to serve and obey him. And then living in a way that pleases him helps us more fully know him. And then the more that we continue to know him, the more we're able to live like him. And it just keeps going, spiraling more and more of knowledge and action. And so regardless of what situation others are in, regardless of the situation we find ourselves in, we can pray that we would bear fruit And we could pray that we would increase in knowing who God really is. And so the the first set of categories there is bearing fruit and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then that second category, being strengthened and giving thanks to God. Being strengthened and giving thanks to God. Do you ever feel tired or weary, or like you don't have enough strength. That's common to the human experience. (laughs) And we feel it more and more the longer we live. But as we saw during our Advent series, as we looked at Isaiah 40, God never tires, and he gives strength to weary people. And so also, Paul prays that the Colossians would be strengthened, And notice the level of strength that he's talking about here as he qualifies it, that it's with all power according to his glorious, God's glorious might. Paul is praying that these believers would be strengthened with all of the power that they need from the glorious might of God himself. That's as much power as you could ever think. We felt an earthquake today that shook things, and it's nothing compared to the power that our God has. And the Bible tells us that he gives us that power. He gives us that strength in a way that equips us for something. But notice what that power is for. It's for all endurance and patience. That is not how I think of the Christian life. If I think of being tapped into the very power of God that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, I think that means soaring above my problems. I think that means I get to part the Red Sea in my life, right? That's where we see power, but no. That this is power for endurance and patience. Endurance and patience are basically synonyms, but I think the Bible, when the Bible uses them, there's usually a slight distinction that, that I think is valid here. Endurance usually refers to circumstances and situations. Patience usually refers to dealing with people. Our lives are filled with both. One commentator says it this way, endurance is what faith hope, and love bring to an apparently impossible situation. 
And the latter, patience, is what faith, hope, and love show to an apparently, boy, that can be tricky. They show to an apparently impossible person. The repeated call for Christians, especially even as we come to the book of Revelation, is one of patient endurance. That we endure difficult situations of life in a fallen world. That we endure and are patient with fallen people. But that's empowered by the very power of God. And so he prays that they would be strengthened, but then there's something closely connected to the strength to endure and be patient, and that is with joy giving thanks to the Father. Now, you may have noticed in my reading that I've been chafing against the punctuation in our Bibles, and I don't like to do that uh, all the time. But there's an ambiguity of where the phrase with joy comes in the text, right? Um, Does it go with patiently enduring or does it go with giving thanks? And both are true biblically. We can have joy in the midst of enduring and we can have joy in the midst of giving thanks. Grammatically, it seems like it might be a bit more connected with giving thanks. And so I've just been reading it that way. What pleases our Lord Jesus is that we give thanks to the Father with joy. When you think, uh, when you wake up in the morning and think of what would be pleasing to God, does giving him thanks come to your mind? Sometimes it can seem so mundane, so trivial, right? But it's amazing to realize that that's something that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus and to the Father. Ed Welch says that the prayer of a mature Christian is really two words being said over and over again. And I think we see it in these verses. Help and thanks. Help and thanks. Isn't that what he's saying here? Being strengthened to endure and be patient. Help and giving thanks with joy to the Father. And so that's what we see going on here in what Paul is saying is pleasing to the Lord Jesus. And so just to summarize what we've covered so far, what can we always pray for others other believers, and for ourselves, that the Spirit would give them and us wisdom and understanding that we need to live in a way that pleases the Lord Jesus, that they would bear fruit, that the fruit of the Spirit would in every situation be growing in our lives in some way, that we would increase in the knowledge of God, coming to know and understand him and his ways even more, and that we would be strengthened by God himself to endure these circumstances and to be patient while we wait for Christ's return, and that in all of that we would be able to give thanks to the Father with joy. Those are things that we can always ask the Lord for in prayer. And so we've looked at how our prayer is really one to please the Lord Jesus. We've seen four ways to please the Lord Jesus. The last thing that I'd like us to consider is the story of our prayers. We've looked in many ways at the grammar of this passage. We've talked about things like participles and clauses and stuff. Some of you may really like that. 
Uh, others of you may gravitate much more to the story of things. And by story, I don't mean a fiction. I mean a plot line, a, a narrative that underlies these things. Do you ever have those times when you may know the right phrases, you may know the right grammar, you may know the right content of what we're supposed to pray, but your heart just isn't in it? You just don't feel it for yourself or for others. Thinking about giving thanks with joy can feel like the furthest thing from your mind. Well, there's another aspect of this prayer that I think meets us right in that very need, And it's seen in the language that Paul uses. You may have noticed as I've been reading this prayer that how much of it is filled with language from the Old Testament and from the story of God's people. Paul, as he's praying these things, it's so evident that he's caught up in this whole Bible story of what God is at work doing among his people. And it's that narrative, it's that story that's animating and undergirding the things that he prays for. And that story and that narrative is what can also animate our hearts as well. And there's really two main parts of the story that he's highlighting. The story of salvation and the story of service. We see from what he says that we as Christians are a part of God's story of salvation. Paul piles on phrase after phrase of what we can give thanks for with joy, doesn't he? And those those phrases are language of God's deliverance of his people that recalls what we've been studying in the Exodus accounts, that he has delivered us not from Pharaoh in Egypt, but he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, the forces of evil that enslaved us in captivity because of our sin. He has transferred us. He's brought us out of that bondage, not merely to Sinai, not merely to the promised land, but to what those things always pointed to, to the inheritance of the saints in light. That's the inheritance of God dwelling forever with his holy people in a glorious existence that's described as no darkness, but only light. And Jesus, when he breaks onto the scene, he announces that that this kingdom of heaven has come, that he has brought the kingdom of the beloved son. And we know that in the Old Testament, as we consider this story of God's people seeking to dwell with him and God seeking to dwell with them, there's that perennial problem of sin, isn't there? God's people keep disqualifying themselves, don't they? Because of sin. Adam and Eve did in the garden and then the people of Israel did at the golden calf and then later when they're in the land. But the good news of of the story that Paul's thinking of is where we come to in the redemptive storyline, God himself has qualified us to share in this inheritance. And it's a qualification that comes because we are now in his beloved son. And as those who are in the Son by faith in Him, we have, even now, redemption. That word that's all throughout the Scriptures of the price that is being paid to purchase us from all that has enslaved us. Brothers and sisters, do you 
realize that through the blood of the beloved Son, the price has been paid so that you could be qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Whatever you are facing today, you have even now, because you are in the Lord Jesus, assurance that the price has been paid, that you can dwell with God. You have even now the forgiveness of your sins because the blood of Christ was shed for you. And so Paul has all of this imagery of the people of God in his mind of how we have been qualified by God and delivered and transferred and redeemed and forgiven. And that's the story of the gospel that animates him to pray and to give thanks. And he calls the Colossians to give thanks as well. And so as we come to understand our place in that story, it helps us to come to know and understand that joy that helps us to give thanks. But Paul also knows where we are in that salvation story as well, doesn't he? That the fullness of the kingdom of the beloved son has not yet arrived in full. And being part of Christ's kingdom now, while it is glorious already, it is difficult, isn't it? And so we, like Paul, pray for God to use the same power that raised Christ from the dead to empower us to endure these hardships of life in a fallen world and to empower us to patiently love fallen people just as Jesus endured and was patient while he was here on this earth. But there's another aspect of the story that's on Paul's mind, not just this story of salvation, but we're part of the story of serving God. And that's seen in his language as well. Do you remember what Israel did when they were brought out of the land of Egypt? When they were set free, when they were forgiven, they were called to serve the living God to serve him at the mountain, to one day serve him in the land. And Paul envisions us as believers like the redeemed people of Exodus, going about the work of being God's kingdom of royal priests through our actions, making his name and his glory known throughout the earth. When Paul prays that they would have all wisdom and understanding and the knowledge of God's will, That's almost an exact quotation of what is said in Exodus when the Spirit equips Bezalel and Aholiab for the building of the tabernacle. And those exact words are picked up again in 1 Kings 7 to speak of Hiram of Tyre who worked to build Solomon's temple. So there's this interesting theme that's going on in the Old Testament that that the Spirit empowers people to be able to build the dwelling place of God by giving them wisdom and understanding to do that. And then Paul picks that up here to speak of, of us. What is he saying? Paul envisions that we all, not just a few select people, but men and women and young and old are now equipped by the Holy Spirit himself to engage in God's work, 
Not the work of building a tabernacle or of building the temple, but as those whose bodies are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, we are making God's presence and God's name and God's glory known throughout the earth. How? As the Spirit empowers us to live in a way that's pleasing to the Lord Jesus, it puts on display the wonder of this gospel. What an amazing vision of our lives, isn't it? You realize that the Colossians lived very normal, ordinary lives. They sounded far less glamorous than building a tabernacle or a temple. They worked normal jobs. They had normal families, some of them. Some of them were single. Some of them were slaves. Some of them had status. They were normal people brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what does Paul say? They were busy in their lives, making God's presence and dwelling known on the earth. Isn't that story of service something that can give us hope and strength? When we wake up in the morning and what lies ahead is a very ordinary, difficult life that seems far inferior to building a tabernacle or a temple. But you see what is happening with Paul here is he sees their lives through the lens of what the gospel is doing. Remember last week how he gave thanks because the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the world as it is doing in them. And so when Paul sees this happening in his mind, then his prayer is that the gospel would continue to grow in them so that the gospel can grow through them and so that it can continue to expand by their godly behavior and lifestyle of their love for the Lord Jesus, of the way they are pleasing him because the Spirit's giving them wisdom and understanding of how to act, that the gospel fruit is put on display in their lives and As that happens, just like it happened with Epaphras there in that city, how through him they came to know and understand the word of truth, the gospel, it goes out and it bears fruit in the lives of the people that God has placed in our circles. And so what Paul is really praying for here is gospel growth in the Colossian believers, that it would take root and bear fruit within them, and that it would also grow through them as God has placed them in that city for his purposes. And the same is true for us. We pray for one another, for gospel growth of the Spirit's work in our lives so that the gospel can be made known to those whom we encounter by the way that we live and by the words that we speak. And when we wake up in the morning and we have no idea what to pray, we can pray for the wonder of what God has done for us in the gospel to enable us to give thanks and to be more and more conformed into all that Jesus has secured for us in his life, death, and resurrection. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer for that this morning. Our Father in heaven, we are amazed at how you work, at the grandeur and wonder of this story of how you are bringing people to yourself and you're making them 
conform more and more into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ and more and more into the image bearers that we were created to be. We long for the fullness of all this one day to be revealed. And we pray that in the meantime, that by the Spirit's work, the beauty of gospel life would be growing in us in fits and starts, but that it would be being produced as we turn afresh to you each day for the strength to endure, to be patient, to wait, to bear fruit, to grow in knowledge of you, and to give thanks for who you have made us to be through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.